Oh, once again, welcome back. And yet again, we're privileged to um, have on stage one of the major figures in dubstep. Uh, please welcome Mala. Dubstep developed, it's a sound system thing essentially, in clubs like Forward and yours, DMZ. How did that come about? I can't claim to um, speak for everybody that's contributed to Your dubstep. strand of dubstep. From, from, from my point of view, really, um, you know, I'm, I'm 38 years old, I was born in 1980, so kind of around 92, 93, when I got my first hi-fi. I started listening to hardcore and jungle. Um, so that really was um, my kind of entry point into sound system culture. That was the lineage. It wasn't until we become a little bit older when we started going out to the ravers as, as teenagers. And I actually started playing in clubs when I was about 14 years old. Um, I used to be an MC for some of the jungle DJs. Um, and when it came to making music, um, this is kind of early 2000, you know, I was trying to recreate 94 Jungle. Um, but because of the time we were living in and the technology that was available, of course, you couldn't recreate that sound. Um, I'd also had a small career um, in, 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 in the garage scene in, in the late 90s. And for me, it was a combination of, you know, all of those musics that I was involved in and that I loved. Um, I remember at that time, it seemed like drum and bass again, was getting faster and faster. Um, and in a way, um, we kind of took our foot off the gas. And it, rather than about big build-ups and drops, it just became about this kind of sparse, minimal uh, frequency and space, which in a way kind of goes back to, you know, King Tubby, Augustus Pablo, these type of vibrations, you know? Was that, I mean, you're, uh, you're saying like drum and bass was getting faster. Garage was... Sorry, I have real problems saying garage. I'm, I'm much too middle class. <laughs> I'll say garage. <laughs> um, uh, garage was um, getting, it was just sort of moving off into this kind of shiny kind of pop world. Um, did that influence your thinking at all, that we, there's something new needed? No, not really, but I had an experience with, uh, not, not, not sonically. I, didn't, I, never, I never ever thought or felt there was something New needed to be created. But I had an experience, I was signed to EMI um, when I was 20 years old. Um, I also had a song that was, uh, that charted, not many people know this. <laughs> and um, my experience with a major record label was, being, in a, being a 19, 20 year old, you know, uh, similar to, I guess, what Congo Nati said, you know, part of your journey is that you put your hopes and your dreams into these certain opportunities. And I was pushed onto a, you know, into a pedal stool, which I never asked to be in. And when that didn't turn out the way that the, the record labels had hoped and your manager hopes, you know, you were very quickly kind of discarded. And, you know, so after touring for, for a couple of years and, 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 and living that type of lifestyle, um, when I say living that type of lifestyle, I don't mean, you know, you're going around as you see the, a lot of these guys on Instagram nowadays, um, but I wasn't having to get up and do a nine to five. I mean, that um, 
so being pushed into being elevated into a different space and being told that you're going to be such and such to all of a sudden having to go back to a so-called regular job. You know, I went back to doing debt recovery, uh, calling up people for uh, to collect their insurance. You know, um, this is after I had a record deal with EMI. So, I, you know, as a result of my, um, as a result of this really, I guess, depressing experience, um, it it kind of forced me to become fiercely militant with my approach going forward. And that's why till, still to this day, you know, I'm, I'm still independent. The majority of my music has been released on my own labels. Um, I don't work with any, any major labels or anything like that. So going back to your, you know, answering your question, that part of the industry had a massive influence on why I approach music and the industry the way that I did after. To move into the independence sphere, and don't think you got away with not telling us what that career was you had because I noticed you skated over that. You can Google it. You do? Oh, <laughs> I guess we're going to have to. Yeah. Um, but um, I suppose the idea that there was an alternative music scene at the time, especially in London, that you could, you could make records, you could get them played, you could build an audience. And how, how fascinating was that? I guess in a way that's always what I, you know, growing up as a child, um, that's what I always thought about. You know, I listened to, I used to go and see Groove Rider and Fabio playing a dance and Kenny Ken and Mickey Finn and Nicky Black Market and they were always cutting dub plates. You listen to the pirate radio station. So for me, that way of approaching music always seemed just the way naturally to go. Was it easy to create the music you wanted to create, to move it in that way? I don't know. I, I never really, I never really thought about it like that. You know, I, I, for me, making music really was a kind of a way to, to to meditate, and that's where we came up with the the DMZ slogan, which was meditate on bass weight. You know, I'd go and do my my my, my daily work. I'd get in from work, I'd eat my food, and then I'd make beats and until you know three four o'clock in the morning, I'd go sleep for a few hours, and then I'd get up and go work. And that was my that was my cycle. You know. It, it it sounds really interesting. I mean, you make this all this kind of really kind of um, easy action music, if you like. It's really kind of uh, peaceful, for want of a better word. And yet, you've just been out debt collecting during the during the I day. I wasn't looking on oh. people's doors. It wasn't oh, that deep. <laughs> Good. I was going to say I, I couldn't. I couldn't equate the two. You know, this bloke who makes this really kind of. Oh, right, this bloke who makes this really mellow music, going out, um, taking people's televisions. But yeah, you know, I think, you know, what we have in us um, doesn't necessarily get expressed in an obvious way. What I do find interesting is, um, when I asked about moving it forward, I mean, one of the core aspects of sound systems and the way sound systems work is the DJs or the selectors are playing what the audience want, but might not realize they want. It's moving it along in little increments all the time. You know, how we move from ska to rock steady to reggae to roots to dance or, you know, it's always the sound system thinking, well, we've got to attract a crowd, so let's kind of move it on here. Did, did you feel that? Um, in the most unselfish way, I was completely selfish when it came to playing music, and I still feel that way now. Um, the music that I play and, uh, you know, not the music that I make, uh, the music that I make it, I have a very different relationship to 
of the music that I play from other producers and that I sign and release on Deep Medi. Um, but no, it was always a, it was always a, a selfish way of a, a, approaching. You know, I love the music. Um, we were fortunate enough to create an environment where we were able to play the music. Um, you know, we, that's why the reason why we set up our own dance is because we wanted to play our own music to an audience, and it didn't matter whether it was an audience of ten or an audience of a hundred or a thousand. It was, you know, it was, it was basically fulfilling this this deep kind of need that we had inside. Were you surprised that um, what you did moved things on to a degree? I, I know it wasn't merely you that um, did dubstep, but the whole thing that was was there was a shift. Yeah, for sure. You, you know, it's you, you never expect or imagine things to, to move in the way that they do. Um, I think when you're in it, it was just about focusing on that, you know. Um, I think Fabio mentioned something similar earlier that, you know, you concentrate on making the tunes. You'd make those tunes to play in a dance that you would play at later on that weekend. You think that you had the, the you know what I mean, one of the tunes that was going to tear down the dance, but then Benga would make something or Scream or Code Nine would make something and that would kill the dance equally. So it was always about sparring, you know, it was like that, that friendly competition, especially in the early days. It was very much a unity, you know, and, 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 and the competition really wasn't fierce in that respect. It was, you know, you were inspired by people that were making tunes that just used to blow your mind and that was happening on a regular basis. So at that period of time, we were just going, you know, I was just going with the, with, with the motion, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thought out plan. Were you part of the uh, Big Apple posse? Yeah, yeah, we, we had the second to last release, I think, on Big Apple, because that was about our local record shop, you know. Because this is the thing that amazed me about it, it was there was this clearly defined focal point for dubstep, which was Big Apple Records. How remarkable was that? Yeah, Big Apple was important because it was a, it was a record shop, you know, primarily. Um, and uh, Arthur used to have a studio, which is known as Artwork, who was part of Magnetic Man. He had a studio on, on at the top of the shop, and Hatcher was in the basement. And those guys just had different kind of ears, you know, and they were also prepared to take risks because at that time, I'd sent my music to a couple of labels. Um, but, they you know, with, with, with pushing things forward, there always has to be an element of risk you always have to put everything on the line and it can always swing one way or another. And that was always one of the, you know, something that I always found interesting in those early days, going to other countries to play music, that you just didn't know how people were going to respond to that music and you constantly had to take risks. And that's what, you know, that's I think what was amazing about Big Apple and about Tempo and Forward and all of those early labels is that they were just taking risks. You know, it wasn't about money, it wasn't about... Uh, any of those things uh, commercially, it was purely for, for the music. Well, that was, I mean, the great thing about that record shop, uh, Black Market, places like that, where you could sell records or quite a few records. You know, you can make your money back, essentially. Yeah, we used to do all the distribution ourselves. So we used to go to all the record shops in London after pressing up, you know, 500, 1,000 records, which later went to 2,000 plus, whatever. And, uh, you know, we would, we would go to the record shops and sell the records. Some record shops in the early days wouldn't shelve it because they just didn't know where to place it. And uh, Soul Jazz Records was one of those. I remember to go into Soul Jazz Records and um, they were just like, yeah, we just don't know how to sell this. So they didn't take any. And it got to DMZ 004, which was um, a Koki release. Um, 
and I remember dropping a box into Soul Jazz Records. And by the time it took me from getting from Soho to back to East Corinne train station, they already called me and said, can you come back with a couple more boxes because we've already sold out. So it was that kind of year when I started realizing actually things are really beginning to change now. There was, uh, what I find is great about this is it's um, an exact sort of duplication of um, Cox and Dodd, for instance, in Jamaica, who cutting records for his own sound system in the 1950s took a, someone said, oh, you should try and release this. And he said, no, no one's going to want to buy these. You know, his, his dub plates, essentially. So he got a couple of boxes pressed up, got on his motorbike and took them round and was absolutely astonished when he sold out. You know, it was the, it was the same thing, you know. And then in England, um, Emil Shalit, who ran Melodis Records, put his records with a food distributor called um, the O.T. Brothers because that's where his audience are going to be buying um, yam and dashing. At, um, so it's, it's, I think it's lovely that these traditions carry on and also allows you to work like this. Yeah, for me as well, you know, running a business, it was always important to understand all of the steps that went from the actual creation to getting the records in the shop, you know. And, uh, you know, I still... You know, I have people that I work with now who, who help with these things, but you know, uh, I, 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 love the, I love the art and still do love the art of putting out records, you know, thinking about the artwork, thinking about where it's gonna go and you know, hoping that people, when they do buy a record of mine, that they feel like they're getting value for the hard uh, money that they, uh, you know, that they spent. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I remember um, when I was writing Bass Culture, I talked to an old sound man um, in London, one of the first in London, passed a couple of years ago, unfortunately. And he said, when you're running a sound system, you, you know you've got working people coming in your dance who have worked hard for their money. So if they're going to pay you five pounds to get in your dance, you better give them a seven pound dance. And that's essentially the same thing you've told me. I still, I still I feel a great sense of responsibility for people that come to see me play, as well as the people that I work with on my record label, you know? Um, again, it's not just taking somebody's music and releasing it. There comes a whole different mindset and dynamic and approach and a, a type of nurturing and care that I feel responsible. That I sh that's that's what I do, you know, and that's what I should do. Also, the risk-taking element is, as we touched on, is what moves things on. If you can take risk, you haven't got, say, the massive overhead of an EMI, so therefore it hasn't got to sell X amount just to keep the lights on, you know. Um, those risks allow it to move on because I would believe that, especially London black music, it's probably reinvented itself by the time I get home. And it just seems to reinvent itself all the time, yet mainstream rock still sounds like the Beatles. Is that because you're in charge of it yourself? I always saw, you know, still today, I, st I still play vinyl only when I, when I play my shows. I still cut dub plates regular. And um, for me, the dub plate was like the A&R, you know. That's what would be, that's what would be tested on, on the audience. And if it got a certain response, you knew that you could press that record and you might sell enough so you could press another record, you know. And we were fortunate that it pressed, you know, it sold enough that we could do more. Um, and this was always, you know, it was always just, you know, putting one step, one, one foot in front of the other, slowly, surely, you know. There was never no big mastermind plan that we're going to do this and do that. And 
you know, I guess that's in a way why DMZ stopped when it did, you know. Um, why did it stop when it did? From my, from my point of view, and maybe the other guys in DMZ have a, 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 different, a different story, but um, at some point, things just got so spread out. So actually, the, 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 the people that were to play at the dance, people were just not available anymore, you know? It, it, it went from everybody being available and every being, everybody being at every forward event and every DMZ event to people not being available because they're being booked you know, all around the world. And I think just time changed, you know, time changed. Yeah, I suppose, um, yeah, you've moved on to whatever. And I think, I mean, one thing you did after DMZ was um, keep the kind of small vibe. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, small, but you didn't, you know, become a sort of mainstream company. But you, you moved to Belgium as well. Um. Yeah, that was for family reasons. The two aren't related. No, my, oh. my, my partner's Belgian and, you know, I have children, so off the record kind of thing. But um, um, I think at some point in life, I think you have to, you know, you, you, you kind of want to discover yourself and understand who it is you are and what it is you're about. And for me... It doesn't matter whether I play in front of 100 people or 10,000 people. Um, fundamentally, I do exactly the same thing and I play the same music. I don't cater for an audience in, in terms of its scale. Um, and I think I realized that my mindset is always the same. Like I just, I'm, I'm a roots man. I'm always going to be underground. My mindset is going to always be underground. As I say, even if I do play to, you know, I played, I played a show for Bass Nectar, which is an American... Uh, EDM artist, it was in a stadium of, and it was uh, about 24,000 people and I was still playing you know, the dubs that I play that go off in a dance and for me that's fundamentally what it's about you know, um, being able to get into these uh, new opportunities and still being able to, 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 to play what's you know, at my core and, and by doing that I think people can understand that this is where you've, this is where you've come from and you know, in those environments, you, you, you're, you're playing a lot of music that's, you know, dear to you, but to new ears, you know, and you can play it in, in an authentic way. If I was to try and do something that wasn't me, I couldn't expect people to enjoy it. Do you think audiences have evolved um, in, say, the last 20 years when you started off, um, that they're more accepting or, yeah, they'll, they'll accept more now? I think maybe it's just because of the way that we consume music has changed, you know, so it's easier to, it's just easier to listen to everything. You can dip in and everything, you know, you can just turn on your Spotify and one minute you're listening to X and then, you know, all of a sudden you're back round at A because it just, you know, the playlists that are, are, are kind of automated. So, yeah, I think I think we just consume music much different, you know, differently than when we, when we used to. I remember growing up as a youngster being hardcore junglist for many years and I didn't want to listen to any other music and that that was my thing. I'm sure that exists today but I think you'd have to ask a teenager, you know. I, I, I don't know. You'll have to point me towards a teenager. <laughs> but, um, I suppose what I, what I was saying really was one of the things that the mainstream record industry always had against, you know, sort of reggae, funk, even jazz funk, where, you know, um, and then later with Lovers Rock and whatever was 
The idea that it needed to be watered down for mainstream consumption. Yet, my personal experience has been that the audience, or at least the audiences in London, actually prefer the real deal. Is, is that what you found? I think with mainstream, I think, again, if you don't, if you don't fall into a certain narrative, then you don't get the play. And Congo you know, mentioned that earlier. And I, I think that's very real, you know. And you think that's still the same? Yeah, of course. Kind of as it was. Of course. You know, I always, I always, you know, I always thought why, why, you know, on positive uplifting music like reggae, why doesn't it get more love on mainstream radio? But some of the, some of the madness that you hear on radio today is, you know, it doesn't really make sense. So you kind of have to look deeper to why that's allowed and why that's being funded and supported and why the others isn't, you know? I know this is a, a difficult question, but where do you see it going? I mean, we've, we've moved through, you know, into grime, into drill and whatnot. Have you got any idea about what will happen next? I've got no idea, you know. <laughs> That's the best no. answer. You know, you, sh you shouldn't know, really, you know. But, I mean, I just like to ask, see if anything you're thinking about, what are you doing next? Um... I've got a big show. I don't want to do a, a shameless plug. I hate oh talking about my on. own stuff. It's horrible. Um, I feel very fortunate that I have an opportunity to do a performance with an orchestra at the Royal Festival Hall, which is uh, happening on uh, December the 2nd. So we're going to be doing a two-hour show, and it's going to be music from my back catalogue stuff that's released and unreleased. Music from both of my albums, the the Cuba project that I released. And is, sorry to interrupt, but this is something that I'll actually add on my notes and manage to skip past. But you went, yeah, to Cuba, um, recorded two albums in Cuba? I recorded one album in Cuba and I recorded another album in Peru. How did that come about? That was Giles Peterson, really. Um, Giles was doing some work in Cuba with many different musicians and he had an idea for a project and for some strange reason he decided that he thought I could go to Cuba and make an interesting album so you know I'd known Giles over the years just through um, you know doing a couple of interviews and stuff but he actually gave me a call one random November I said Do you want to meet for a Guinness and um, we went and spoke about the project and in the, in the, the following January I think this is 2011 um, yeah, in the following January, we went to Cuba for 10 days where, you know, I was fortunate enough to record musicians from uh, Buena Vista Social Club. And um, as a result of that, you know, I, yeah, I, I, made, I made an album. It, for me, that kind of came full circle because I was really inspired by a music producer called Nitin Sawney when I was a teenager. And um, not to use the term world music because I don't, I don't, really like that term world music but his music was really worldly you could hear there was lots of influences from different especially in his album beyond skin and the other album after that called prophecy um those albums for me were you know that i always used to travel so in my mind somewhere i was always wanted to travel and make music and doing these projects in in, in cuba and peru definitely allowed me to do that um and again you know you um you have to take a risk because i remember reading some comments on uh, the forums and stuff like that, and people going, why the fuck's Malachi to Cuba? We still want to hear him make music that he was making 
you know, back in 2005. And again, you have to, you kind of have to follow yourself and you have to guide yourself. And again, you have to put yourself in these uncomfortable situations in order to develop and grow. And I think as a producer and as a DJ, I think it's my responsibility to challenge both myself and the audience that come to listen. Is the um, orchestral project that sort of challenge? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Are you enjoying it? Um, I find these big projects um, <laughs> painful. <laughs> I thought it was a, yeah. There's a little pause there. I said, are you enjoying it? And there's, there's definitely elements of create of being creative that I love. You know, when you're in that moment. But yeah, the the, the logistics and the planning and actually having to think about what it is that I have to kind of accomplish. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't enjoy it so much. Fair enough. And when, when is that going to be realized? I don't want to sound ungrateful though, you know. It's, uh, I feel very, no, no, I feel, feel very fortunate. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to, 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 to kind of, you know, challenge myself and put on a show like that. And, you know, all said and done, when it comes to, you know, when the curtain drops and the show goes up, I'll be in my element. You know, and that's uh, yeah, second of December at the uh, Royal Festival Hall. That's brilliant. Now, has anyone got a question for Mella? Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of tunes. I can play something of mine, um, and I brought something that that really inspired me when I was younger, and it's more the the speech at the beginning. Actually, it's Misty and Roots, which are a, a, a UK band, and um, the intro of this 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 album. Um, kind of, kind of s summed up how I think about making music and myself. Um, so I, maybe I'll just play both tracks because this is obviously something that's traditionally roots reggae, and then I play something of mine, which is kind of my mutation of dub in a way. When we tried this land, we walk for one reason. The reason is to try to help another man to think for himself. The music of our art is roots music. Music which recalls history. Because without the knowledge of your history, you cannot determine your destiny. The music about the present, because if you're not conscious of the present, you're like a cabbage in this society. Music which tells about the future and the judgment which is to come. The music of our artist Roots presenting Misty in Roots. Roots music for everybody. I like to say good evening or good morning. This one yeah. called Mankind, you a sinner. Thank you. Sit down on you. 
So yeah, that's really kind of what I, was, what I love about the opening speech is that <clears throat> I always hope that through music, because I always found it when I was either making music or playing music, um, I just hope that even if it's for a split second through listening to music, my audience when they listen to my music, that they just think for themselves, even if it's just for a moment. And I really like that he sums that up in, in his speech, you know. And this is Misty and Roots live in Belgium, actually. It was the Counter Eurovision album in 1979. And it's kind of funny that, yeah, I ended up in Belgium. Um, so this is a track called Living Different. <clears throat> um, this was um, an album that I put out and I designed the artwork and was inspired when my, was actually in hospital with, um, after my, my partner, she gave birth to our first child. I come up with the idea to put out this record, and it was just a collection of music that I had made over the years. <clears throat> I sold lots of this record, um, and um, I wanted to do something interesting, and this is what is wonderful about having your own label, is that I only made 200 of these picture discs in a pressing of about 6,000, um, and I didn't tell anybody that the picture discs were being released, so some people just ended up with uh, picture discs. That's brilliant. <clears throat> And this is a track called uh, yeah, Living Different. Thank you. 
should have broken the sob. It was funny, earlier when, um, when Fabio said, yeah, this tune here has got the lowest bass, and I was like, you know what, bro? I've got something in the bag, man. It can go lower than that. You know, because fundamentally, we, you know, a lot of the music that I was making, <coughs> you know, I didn't even worry about certain upper octaves and harmonies in, 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 in the bass line. It was really just pure sine wave sub, you know? Um, and that's why you didn't really hear a lot of the bottom end figure. Has anyone got a question? Um, so, I know as a, you know, DJ producer, you're a plate man, you know, you cut your, your plates. Um, how important do you think it is for yourself cutting plates, keeping that tradition alive and having spaces like, you know, cutting houses where you can go hear your tunes um, and how important that is for the development of, of new styles of sound system music? For me, it's really important, purely because that's the way I love playing music. Um, it's also, if you have a, you know, ha having a good sound system and playing my music off of vinyl, it does give it something that a digital file doesn't. You know, I, I often do back-to-back -back sets with people who play with CDJs. And don't get me wrong, it, 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 it does the same thing in a dance. You know, the audience are never, not really... None of the wiser. Um, I, I, hear, I hear a difference. Not to say that it's better or worse. It's just the frequency that I want to resonate. You know, it really needs to be played from 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 vinyl. Um, in terms of going forward, I'm not one of those people to harp on about. You know, we must continue to cut dubs because I understand that technology changes and. Just because somebody wants to play off a laptop or a USB key doesn't make them any less of a musician um, and it doesn't make their performance any less. But I do think it's, I do, again, I kind of feel responsible for keeping my, my roots, the culture that I, I came from, um, alive, you know? And that's why, you know, one of the reasons why also I continue to, to cut dubs. So, you know. I don't necessarily think that me cutting dubs is going to make other people want to cut dubs, but it definitely, as a as a as a record label who still manufactures records, I think I think that helps selling records in a way. If people actually see that you still play records, you know. But just as this being sound system music, mm -hmm. you, know, you said about mm -hmm. making D lines with side waves. Mm -hmm. you know? part of cutting dubs going through that mastering process mm -hmm. might not be something that happens in future, you know, with digital files and... Yeah, yeah, you, de you definitely hear it. Yeah, you definitely, you know, cutting dubs was also quality control, you know. It's expensive to cut dub plates. Um, it still is expensive to cut dub plates. So, you know, you always made sure that what you were given and what you were about to cut was your absolute best, you know, the best you could possibly do. Um, so, yeah, that was also... That was also my, very much my quality control, and it still is, you know. So, you know, maybe something does go missing if people don't cut dubs, but it's uh, not for me to control, I don't think. Okay, we've got time for one more, I think. Yeah, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, but
Say again? Sorry, is this a question? Oh. And uh Valverage initiates the Brexit vote and he's doing a meeting with uh Maria Pen, a fascist, then Donald Trump, and we evaluate them. I get fascist vibes from something in this audience. Um no doubt about it. I mean you'd be quite explicit. You'd be very explicit about your fascist vibes. Some of you, not all of you, just very curious. Um, with respect, one issue that has not been addressed at all, whereas we've had some wonderful talks from uh, the uh, one of the mountain of Trojan, from Rastafarian here, about the challenges faced by racism, yet we still have people here who have been quite explicitly racist. There are a lot of problems with racism in this country, and that doesn't matter. I've heard people talk about it right tonight in this audience. And although I think your music is absolutely wonderful and we've been very retro, but what about the politics facing the country today? Hasn't been touched on at all. Uh, if I mention it, I get abuse from some people here. How do you see the music industry or the musicians who took that jungle, who took that grime, who took that drill, actually challenging uh, fascist sensibilities which we have, or well, I'm certainly hearing right here today. We haven't heard anything about that. We're very, very retro. We've heard wonderful, wonderful, and I think very moving and heartfelt testimony from everyone here today, uh, but uh, not, uh, nothing from the audience, not, not even one thing about the challenges facing people today, whether it's Black Lives Matter, anywhere in the world, or indeed in this country. How about, can we hear anything about that? Just, just anything? Is it possible? <laughs> Pretty big question, no? Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good question. Can I? Can I, can I expand on that point? Um, so Malik, would it be possible for you to um, expand on your experiences in Peru and sort of expanding on that, how you think music could be used for the greater good in spreading conscious thought? Because we need music to help progress. No, 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 because because the Peru created a spiritual experience that would facilitate using music as medicine to help our society move forwards and thus defeat the problems that you're talking about. So would it be possible for Marla to continue? Um, can I say, as a black female that works within the music industry and I'm speaking after, I think that with the times now, um, things are slowly changing and with the music industry, it's becoming a lot more diverse um, not just with black um, black people within the music industry and the creative industry as a whole, um, also um, with, with females in the industry too. So um, I don't think it's so much segregated as more. I think it's a lot more um, different cultures coming together and appreciating all different kinds of music. I don't think it's as, as segregated as it used to be. Um, so yeah, that would be answering your question as a black woman who works within the industry.
I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We really have run out of time on this. We really have. Thanks.